This afternoon, um, I'm really going to talk, as I say, about, in particular, um, the power of, of nothing, uh, the power of no, as I sometimes somewhat provocatively call it. Um, <clears throat> but um, somebody asked me, first of all, gentleman near the front, if there are any Quakers here, he wants to meet them. Um, right, okay, well, now, right. Um, enough of this social bonding, that's good. Right, now. Uh, <laughs> um, as you well know, uh, speech is silver, but uh, no speech is golden. So I'm going to pack up and go now. Um, but <laughs> uh, the world in which we live finds this sort of thing very hard to understand. Uh, capitalism and its advertising want us to be busily saying yes all the time to things, and it's thought of as rather, well, negative to say no, but sometimes no is incredibly important. In fact, it's probably much more important than yes. Uh, not knowing is better than knowing, according to pretty much all the great sages, Socrates, the Buddha, St. Paul, Confucius, Montaigne, Swami Ramdas, they all more or less said the same thing. Of course, the not knowing is not just the ignorance of a child, it is the knowing that comes, or the not knowing, I should say, that comes the other side of knowing. And now that you know it all, because you heard this morning, you can now discover that you need to forget it all. In the literature of Taoism, in the Tao Te Ching, it says that Tao does nothing, and yet nothing is left undone. And the word, uh, the Sanskrit word sunyata, which is usually translated as emptiness, is from a root svi or sva, which denotes hollowness and swelling as of a seed as it expands, or as of the womb, the potential space in which something grows. No is prior to yes. Um, it can work in many ways to be creative. I'm going to talk a bit about that. Uh, Heidegger, one of my favorite philosophers, um, all of whom begin with H, Heraclitus, Hegel, and Heidegger. Um, I also like plants beginning with H, and hostas, hebes, and hellebores, but that's beside the point. Um, um, no is prior to yes. And Heidegger said uh, something that has puzzled people, das nichts, nichtet. Uh, he's been much mocked for saying this because he invented a verb, nichten, to, to nuth, the thing that nothing does. And he said nothing nuths. In other words, he saw nothing not as an entirely negative, we don't have the language to say what I'm trying to say. He didn't see nothing as simply that, just absence of everything. He saw it as a something that was created. And uh, Jakob Burma uh, has this idea of the, the unground, which is the start of everything, and it negates itself, and out of that things come into being. Often we need to say no to the obvious in order later to say yes to what arises. And the word obvious is interesting because 
it, like a lot of words that begin with ob, it means in, uh, coming in between. Uh, and obvious is something that you meet on the way uh, and it's either in your way or it's something so obvious that you see it as you pass. Um, but I like the idea that it might be in your way, the obvious, um, because it's rather like all the other things that obtrude and obfuscate and obscure and, and so forth. So saying no to what is obvious is often a good starting point rather than taking the direct route. And if you remember, um, the left hemisphere tends to believe that things are achieved by going straight for your target, whereas the right hemisphere can see that that's probably not going to work. Uh, I think I'll go and meet her, said Alice, for though the flowers were interesting enough, she felt that it would be far grander to have a talk with a real queen. You can't possibly do that, said the rose. I should advise you to walk the other way. This sounded nonsense to Alice, so she said nothing but set off at once towards the Red Queen. To her surprise, she lost sight of her in a moment and found herself walking in at the front door again. Well, this actually is, like most things in Lewis Carroll, uh, both superficially amusing and actually quite a profound statement about how the world works. There is a lovely book by an economist called John Kay, a slim volume called Obliquity, uh, about the importance of adopting an oblique approach, which really chimes with what I was saying this morning about the importance of uh, things that are implicit. And once you focus on them in the glare of attention explicitly, they start to behave differently from the way they were behaving. And this is obviously true with all due respect to the American constitution of happiness. It cannot be pursued. The harder you pursue it, the more it flees from you. Happiness comes as a byproduct of forgetting yourself. And in business, um, it's been thought recently by lots of uh, clever gurus that the way to succeed is to cut all the nonsense about looking after your staff and looking after your customers and actually producing a good product. The key thing is to think about the bottom line. And so in a number of rather spectacular uh, collapses, ICI, Boeing, Merck, Pfizer and Citigroup, all of them enormously successful international conglomerates, um, went tits up, if you'll pardon the expression, after uh, men in suits came in and said all that really mattered was making money. In fact, the way you make money is to forget about making money and do a very good job. A lot of family businesses have worked on that principle for a long time. So going straight for your target is often something that needs to be inhibited because systems are complex and you soon find that you're caught up in recursive loops which change the direction of what you're doing and produce perverse outcomes. One of my um, uh, sort of rather unsung heroes is, is this chap, Fabius Maximus Cunctator. Uh, Cunctator was his nickname. In Latin, it means the delayer, um, because uh, he managed to outwit the Carthaginians by simply doing nothing. Uh, he and his army presented themselves and waited for the Carthaginians to make a move. And the Carthaginians thought, well, two can play at that game. So they sat there and waited for the Romans to make a move so that they could outwit them. But the difference was that 
Fabius Maximus was on home territory, and it was very easy for him to carry on this process for as long as he liked. But the Carthaginians were a long way from home, and very soon their resources started to run out. And uh, so in this way, he caused um, not exactly a glorious uh, defeat, but he brought off a success, for which he was then sacked and subsequently reinstated, because they discovered that actually this was rather a wise man. More of things seems obvious in linear thinking, that if something is good, more of it is better. But as I suggested earlier, everything is poison in the long run, and that everything needs to be balanced and tempered. It's simply a question of where you draw the line, which is something completely forgotten, it seems to me, in modern politics, where there are things that are bad and things that are good, and if they're good, we should have more of them, and if they're bad, we mustn't have any of them, but actually, we're missing quite a lot along the way. Negation can be a very obviously creative act. In fact, one of the things that I think is so important is this idea that creation is the bringing into being of things that could never have been imagined, perhaps not even by God. There's a moment in Genesis, the creation story is told twice in Genesis, and I think in the second case, um, you will remember that when God had finished creating the world, he looked and saw that it was good. He didn't already know that it was good, because this was something completely new, even to him, that was coming into being. And he and his creation evolved together, it seems to me. But the Genesis story exemplifies what I'm saying, because God, according to the Genesis story, created the world by dividing the heavens from the earth, by dividing the sea from the dry land, by dividing night from day, so that dualities are necessary for the coming into existence of anything. It is the world of the 10,000 things, as well as the world of the one. People say, all is one. It sounds profound. And I often say, yes, and all is two. Now what? Because, in fact, both of these things are right, and both of them need to be taken into account together. It is the duality of multiplicity with unity that is important, not unity on its own, which is a dead, inert idea. As Shelley said, life like a dome of many-coloured glass, in a famous phrase, stains the white radiance of eternity. And I'm on the side of the many-coloured glass myself. All is one and all is not one. And it's out of that conjunction that everything else arises. I mentioned I was uh, in Oxford uh, at a certain stage in my life, and one of my colleagues was uh, a Canadian monk called uh, James McConaughey, who devoted his life to uh, editing the works of Erasmus. And uh, I liked him very much. We were sitting together at dinner one night, and I was in my 20s. And I very much admired Erasmus because it seemed to me that he exemplified everything that seemed to me to be important. He was flexible. He wasn't hidebound. He didn't compartmentalize, but crossed the boundaries. He was humorous. He was tolerant. All the things that the rigidity of the world prior to the Renaissance humanists um, had seemed to be. And I was asking him what he was working on, and he said, oh, I've just written a paper about Erasmus's seal, the seal with which he would seal documents, not the thing that goes arf in the bedroom. 
Um, so, according to Thurber. Uh, no, the, his seal. And I said, oh, tell me about the seal. And um, there's Erasmus, uh, as depicted by Holbein. And he said, well, on the one side, there is a fine uh, profile of Erasmus by Quentin Massis. And the, on the other is the symbol of his sort of, if you like, his patron god, which was the god Terminus. And I said, well, tell me about Terminus. He said, Terminus was the god of boundaries. Well, I was dumbstruck. I, my idol had feet of clay. This man who was so wonderfully tolerant and flexible was a man who worshipped boundaries. What on earth was going on? Um, in fact, the boundaries were also the boundaries of the cemetery. So figures of Terminus depicted here um, were uh, placed around a, a graveyard because it represented that bourne from which no traveller returns, as Hamlet says, that boundary between this world and the next. And on it, it says the words cado, uh, concedo nulli, which means I yield to no one, which is thought to be a rather clever um, way of uh, expressing his um, slightly independent spirit uh, in an acceptable way by putting it into the mouth of death, that death yields to none respects neither kings nor princes, but is the common lot of humanity. But it was only many, many years later, really after I was training in psychiatry, that I realized how totally fundamental boundaries are. I mean, I'm a slow chap on the uptake, and I just didn't realize that actually, you know, everything comes into being by being bounded. Um, that's how it is defined from chaos. Uh, here is a picture of his contemporary and friend Thomas More, another of the great Renaissance humanists. And uh, some of you may be so antiquated as to remember a film that made a great impassion, effect on me as a, a teenager, which was um, um, A Man for All Seasons. And in that, which is adapted from a play uh, by Robert Bolt, uh, there is the following dialogue between Roper. Roper is the son-in-law, Will Roper, and Moore was uh, in a very difficult position, as you know, and was um, uh, heading really for, for being um, imprisoned, and, and, and in the end, of course, he was executed. And Roper said to him, um, why do, you, why do you play everything by the rules? You need to save yourself. And so Roper says, so now you give the devil the benefit of law. And Moore replies, yes, what would you do? Cut a great road through the law to get after the devil? Roper, yes, I'd cut down every law in England to do that. Moore, oh, and when the last law was down and the devil turned round on you, where would you hide, Roper, the laws all being flat? This country is planted thick with laws from coast to coast, man's laws, not God's. And if you cut them down and you're just the man to do it, do you really think you could stand upright in the winds that would blow then? Yes, I'd give the devil benefit of law for my own safety's sake. Boundaries are laws, are the condition on which we have freedom which seems paradoxical, but is, of course, a truth that we all know from lived experience. And bounding things also paradoxically create space in which things can happen. 
And, uh, the, but it is important that that should be a kind of unknowing, which I associate with the right hemisphere, not too much, not to fill up that space with things that you know or think you know. And this reminds me of an important concept which uh, Keats uh, alluded to, and he coined the phrase negative capability in a letter that he sent to his brothers. Um, and he says, at once it struck me what quality went to form a man of achievement, especially in literature, and which Shakespeare possessed so enormously. I mean negative capability. That is, when man is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. And that really is the beginning of all creative activity, is not just to create a, a space in which this can happen. There's a sort of deadening effect of familiarity that is, stands in the way. The obvious is in the way of creativity. And my favorite poet, Wordsworth, was a master of the suggestion of what is not stated, in other words, of the implicit. And he had two particular grammatical ticks which enabled him to do this. One was to talk about things that weren't there to suggest something that was. So he uses often un and not and so on. In fact, it becomes such a tick that in the prelude he talks about a certain house as not unvisited by Sydney of old, which is a slightly comical. <laughs> it either was visited or it wasn't, but in most things in life, the, he manages to open things up. And you can, if you think of the probably most often quoted poem of, of Wordsworth, it begins in the first line with both a negative and a comparative, something that is more than what you are seeing. Earth hath not anything to show more fair, uh, his sonnet on passing over Westminster Bridge. Um, but he had many of these, and these comparisons and negatives open up possibility. Uh, in the Tintin Abbey Ode, you will remember phrases like thoughts of more deep seclusion, uh, with some uncertain notice as might seem of vagrant dwellers in the houseless woods or of some hermit's cave where by his fire the hermit sits alone. These beauteous forms through a long absence have not been to me as is a landscape to a blind man's eye. You see this layer upon layer of suggestive uh, 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 contraries. Feelings, too, of unremembered pleasure, such perhaps as have no slight or trivial influence on that best portion of a good man's life, his little, nameless, unremembered acts of kindness and of love. Nor less, I trust, to them I may have owed another gift of aspect more sublime, that blessed mood in which the burden of the mystery, in which the heavy and the weary weight of this in, of all this unintelligible world is lightened. So by negation, a space is open for far more than can be ring-fenced by a positive statement. And probably the single most economic example of this, it comes right at the uh, first couple of lines of uh, Pushkin's poem, Yevgeny Onegin. 
in which the young man is speaking about his uncle, who was uh, an inveterate invalid and who had a household of servants who danced on his every need. And he begins, because he's got to go and sit by the uncle's bedside yet again, and he starts rather sardonically. I'm saying it in Russian because the word nivshutku is important. It means not in jest. And so it literally means my uncle, a man of fine principles, when he was not in jest ill. Now that is often translated as when he was seriously ill. But that it means something completely different, quite apart from the fact that seriously then attaches itself to the degree of the illness. But the fact is, it doesn't tell you anything about the uncle. It only tells you that he was very ill. But by saying when he was not jestingly ill, he has already opened up the whole background to the scene that he is setting so economically that there is this man who has played at being an invalid all his life and now finally he was getting ill. So this idea of opening up a space is, is very important. And I, uh, I've alluded before the lunch break, and I will say it again, to the way in which I believe the hemispheres relate. Imaged in the master and the emissary, so the master is the founding principle who sends the emissary who needs to come back to the master. And, the way, and as I say, thought is expressed, or, or is, uh, sorry, um, given birth to in the right hemisphere needs to be unpacked in the left hemisphere but then needs to be returned to the full context in the right. And a simple way of thinking about this is if you play a piece of music if you are a musician you're attracted first to that piece and then you sit down and try to play it and you discover that at bar 18 there's that difficult passage you're going to have to keep playing it over and over again and then you see oh, at bar 24 there's a return to the dominant and all this kind of stuff you work it all out you analyze it you repeat it you break it up and all this is very important because without doing it you won't perform it well but when you perform it well you must forget all of that as though it never happened it's not that it is negated it is now subsumed into something greater and the person who performs while still thinking about those things will give a terrible performance. So that's the way in which the hemispheres relate and I in the last couple of years uh, came across the Lurian Kabbalah, the Kabbalah being the, the sort of mystical book of uh, Jewish um, wisdom literature uh, and this is the, 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 the working of it by, by uh, a character called Isaac Luria in, I think, the 16th or early 17th century. And in it, he talks about how the world came into being. And the first being uh, is called Einzof. And Einzof is everything and is the ground of all being. And there are three phases, it turns out, to the creation of the world. And what is Einzof's first act? Is it to reach out a hand and make something happen? No. It's to withdraw. The first act is to withdraw. It's called simtum, and it means to step back, to create a space in which there can be something that is not encompassed already by Enzov. And then the second phase is called shevarat hakelim, which means the shattering of the vessels. And in this phase of creation, a spark comes out of Ainsoff into the vessels that are laid in this space. 
but it is too big, too powerful for the vessels, and they shatter. And then the third phase is called tikkun, which means repair. Now, it seems to me this is exactly the process of how the hemispheres relate. First, the right hemisphere is actively attentive in a passive, what I call active passivity, not just passively sitting there waiting for something to happen, but waiting on something that is to happen and receiving it. Then that is sent to the vessels, to the compartments, to the pigeonholes, to the, the categories that are already present to the left hemisphere, but it's too big for them and they don't really contain it. And then it has to be put back together again by the right hemisphere as a new whole, which is the finally created uh, object. So that just seems to me beautiful and extraordinary. And in a way, it's also true that we ourselves grow by a process of both growth and loss. And I don't just mean psychologically speaking, which is also uh, very true, but it's true literally at the level of the creation of the brain. Um, you may not know this, but you have most neurons in your brain when you are seven months of age in the uterus. Um, so uh, when you're born, you've already started losing neurons. <laughs> and the bad news is it carries on um, for those of us who've elected to carry on. And um, there was a process called neuronal pruning, which is basically clearing away uh, of, of neurons. And in doing that, you create something, you sculpt the brain anew in that image that I had from um, Michelangelo. Oh, God. Uh, this is one of Michelangelo's last unfinished pieces. There's a number of six of them, they're called the prisoners. And um, I don't know if you can see this, but uh, I better not step away from the microphone. But if you just look at the way, particularly the top of the thigh is sort of breaking out, there's movement in the muscularity of this, which is quite extraordinary. It appears to be stepping out of the, the stone. But as I say, it's not something that is ever put together. It is something that is discovered. Um, and uh, Heidegger had this concept of um, truth as aletheia, the Greek word aletheia. Aletheia really means the uncovering of something. So truth is not something that we make, but something that is there, that we either allow to be or we don't allow to be. It's not that we make it happen. We don't make things happen. We can't be creative by an effort of will. We can either stop ourselves by, from being creative by doing all sorts of things that will impede it, or we can stop doing them and allow things to come into being, that come into being of their own, as long as we permit them. So truth is really a process of clarification in the sense of unobscuring uh, of something. And, you know, this has its parallel in science. In the Popperian criteria for um, scientific truth, uh, Karl Popper famously uh, declared that you can't um, ever prove something in science. You can just prove that all the alternatives uh, can't be right. Um, in fact, that's been taken further um, uh, by uh, a philosopher called Duhem uh, uh, into the idea that actually you can't demonstrate that things are not true either because 
they're already embedded in a whole host of other suppositions and propositions, any of which could be the source of the untrueness. So the thing that you're actually looking at now may not be untrue, it's just that the foundations behind it are untrue. So uh, that's a slightly pessimistic um, <laughs> piece of advice, but probably wise. I'm not a fan of people who know the truth. Uh, in an earlier life, I was a, a literary critic, and it seems to me the task of the literary critic is to love um, the work of art, and not to be clever at its expense. And there was a sort of tendency I found amongst critics to be superior to the work of art they were criticizing. Somehow, although this poor, benighted, simple-minded poet had created one of the great monuments of mankind, this um, jumped-up critic was much cleverer and saw things that the poet hadn't seen. Well, this is, this is terrible. I mean, it's like standing between you and a Velasquez painting and, and sort of bouncing up and down on a trampoline and saying, look at me, look at me. But this is not how criticism should be. Criticism should be not putting clever ideas in, but clearing away the nonsense so that you can actually let the work of art speak for itself. And of course, good play directors are like this. I mean, I don't know if you're like me, but I find it uh, all very well and quite clever, but slightly irritating to see um, uh, Macbeth or King Lear um, set in 1930s Chicago or something. Well, once you've got the sort of idea that comes to you in the bath, that would be fun, wouldn't it? But actually, this is not helpful. This is just drawing attention all the time to what should be transparent. It makes opaque the filter that is the director instead of allowing the work to speak for itself. And of course, actors who are too obviously acting are another embarrassment. <laughs> So really our options are not saying yes at all. They're actually saying no or not saying no. And this was something that Max Shaler, that I mentioned earlier, also realized. That there were, he thought there were certain forces. Um, uh, there was Geist and there was Drang. And it doesn't really matter how they worked, it's a bit complicated, but the point was that either things could resist Geist or Drang or they could allow Geist or Drang. And that's how things came into being. Don't forget that saying yes would have to depend on something to say yes to which hasn't yet come into being. So your options are to say no or to risk not saying no. And this is the root of the idea of active passivity that I was talking about. And if you'll excuse me, um, I'm going to indulge myself by reading a passage from the Master and His Emissary. Um, for those of you who are um, aficionados, it's on page 230. Um, and it, it's the only, I, I sweat blood over these books. I, I mean, I hate writing books. Um, one of my colleagues at All Souls over dinner said, I'd rather shovel shit than write. And it's really stayed with me because I, I very often feel like that. Um, cleaning the kitchen floor is a wonderful alternative to actually writing the bloody book. And um, I, I hate it but, um, and sweat blood over it, but there was one bit that I puzzled about a hell of a lot and I couldn't express it. And I woke up at five o'clock one morning and I just knew I had to go and write it. And I wrote it and I never changed a word in it. And I wrote this passage between five and eight o'clock in the morning. Um, and it's different, in other words, from everything else I wrote, I suspect. So um, I begin by talking about how the left hemisphere thinks that it makes things. Um, but uh, it makes things happen, it thinks. It thinks it gives life to things, 
but in this it's like a cat pushing a dead mouse around the floor in order to see it move. We don't have the power to make things live like the cat. We can only either permit life or not permit it. And then I go on and talk about Hegel and Spinoza a bit. Then, the feeling we have of experience happening, that even if we stop doing anything and just sit and stare, time is still passing, our bodies are changing, our senses are picking up sights and sounds, smells and tactile sensations, and so on, is an expression of the fact that life comes to us. Whatever it is out there that exists apart from us comes into contact with us as the water falls on a particular landscape. The water falls and the landscape resists. One can see a river as restlessly searching out its path across the landscape, but in fact no activity is taking place in the sense that there is no will involved. One can see the landscape as blocking the path of the water so that it has to turn another way, but again, the water just falls in the way that water has to, and the landscape resists its path in the way it has to. The result of the amorphous water and the form of the landscape is a river. The river is not only passing across the landscape, but entering into it and changing it too, as the landscape has changed and yet not changed the water. The landscape cannot make the river. It doesn't try to put a river together. It doesn't even say yes to the river. It merely says no to the water, or does not say no to the water. And by its not saying no to the water, wherever it is that it does so, it allows the river to come into being. The river doesn't exist before the encounter. Only water exists before the encounter. And the river actually comes into being in the process of encountering the landscape, and, the, and with its power to say no or not say no. Similarly, there is whatever it is that exists apart from ourselves, but whatever it is that exists only comes to be what it is as it finds out in the encounter with ourselves what it is, and we only find out and make ourselves what we are in our encounter with whatever it is that exists. Oh, hope that was... Thank you. Um, that was probably clear as mud, but anyway. Um, <clears throat> Muddy River. Anyway, um, so in uh, the religious tradition, um, actually following on from that, um, I, I want to tell you about McGilchrist's wager. Um, uh, it's a bit of a digression, but there we are. Um, you, you may know of Pascal's wager. Pascal, you remember, said that uh, uh, we don't know whether God exists. Um, but if God does exist, it's extraordinarily important to get to know that God. But if God doesn't exist, nothing much is lost by the effort to try to get to know him. So only a fool would risk not trying to get to know God. Well, I have um, McGilchrist's wager is based on Pascal's wager and goes like this. Either there just is a God and we're duty-bound to get to know him, or there isn't a God and nothing much is lost by the attempt, or... There is a God, but that God is coming into being in greater fulfillment through his involvement with his creation, and his creation comes into being in greater fulfillment through acquaintance with God. And so, actually, we have a very, very important role. I mean, 
everything depends on our ability to respond to that God. Now, if that's the case, it seems to me that the odds we can't know, not even the most ardent atheist, not even Richard Dawkins says that he knows that there isn't a God. He just thinks it's improbable. But if you understand probability and you weight those possibilities adequately, again, only a fool would not at least make the attempt to acquaint themselves with a God if there is one. But I suppose somebody might say to me, an atheist might say, well, look, I, I, I'm sorry. I just think that the belief in God is a childish comfort blanket, and I just don't think it's true. I mean, it may comfort people, but it's not for me. But my answer to that is, so wait a moment. In a godless, pointless universe, why is your allegiance to truth more important than other people's comfort? What is it that fires you? And I think the answer to that is that truth is a divinely existing moral value, as, as, uh, as Kant would have, would have put it. Anyway, there you are. You, you've heard about the Gilchrist wager. You can take it or not. But of course, in the religious tradition, much, is, much of the wisdom literature depends on what is called the apophatic path, the via negativa, the path of not knowing and uh, coming into uh, an idea of God by clearing away the things that God definitely is not. And this is something similar to emptying in, in Buddhism, although I'm not a Buddhist expert, so please tell me uh, uh, when I'm wrong. Um, there is a Zen Buddhist monk called Brad Warner who wrote a fabulous book, uh, at least the title is worth everything. There is no God and he is always with you. <laughs> not knowing, as I say, is not the same as ignorance. And I'm quoting here from Philip McCosker, a Cambridge theologian, that mystery is not a lack of meaning or understanding, but a superabundance of it in relation to our normal finite vision. And, and this, these words are now a direct quote. I know I was born and will die, and that knowledge is mysterious in the way that knowing that one is in love is mysterious. The mysteriousness of both cases does not primarily or easily lie in a lack of knowledge, for it's the knowledge itself that is mysterious. So there is a kind of um, interpenetration, if you like, of, um, of yes and no. We don't, negation is counterpoised with something that is positive. Uh, it's not uh, one or the other. Um, uh, this is a rather fantastic sculpture by um, a Swiss artist which, as, depending on your point of view, either says no or says yes. And I was hoping to show you it transform in a few seconds as you walk around from saying no into saying yes. But there we are. Um, you get the idea. So going back to the, um, the brain scan. Oh, yes. It is not a brain scan. It is um, a, uh, a scan of the very first neural network known, it's 700,000 years old, uh, something called nematostella vectensis. And it was described by the people who, who discovered it as the first um, uh, neural network. And what you see is that there is an axis of the, uh, of the uh, sea anemone uh, along that way. 
and there is another axis that runs uh, laterally, and that it is asymmetrical. So uh, it's different in the one half from the other. And uh, so asymmetry, the possibility of something and a counterpoint to it, uh, is very important. Notice that asymmetry always carries with it the idea of symmetry. Um, not everything that is not symmetrical is therefore asymmetrical. The contents of your handbag are not asymmetrical, they're just a mess, you see. Whereas <laughs> symmetry, uh, asymmetry already suggests that is symmetry implicit for there to be asymmetry. And it's that dialogue that's important. We need both universality and particularity. We need both precision and vagueness, both restriction and openness. Everything flows from the two. In fact, vagueness, there's a book called In Praise of Vagueness, which I recommend to you, which is, uh, displays all the number of times in which precision takes you further from the truth. Um, and uh, in fact, Hegel said, though he said it at much greater length, that the more precise a thing is, the less content it has. Um, and there's a rather nice story about that, which is uh, one of the keepers of the Natural History Museum in London was rather surprised when walking through the main hall to hear one of the attendants saying to a, a, a very awestruck party of tourists that this skeleton of a dinosaur was nine million and six years old. And afterwards, the chap said to him, how did you know it was nine million and six years old? And he said, well, it was nine million years old when I started working here six years ago. <laughs> <laughs> And, and sometimes, you know, in all those things that we have to fill in and score out of 10 and so on, there's a sort of, there's a rhetoric of precision about it, which actually disguises the fact that most of those tools don't measure the things that you really need to measure. So even more than that, everything flows from opposites, but sometimes it's not even that they are opposites, but they are inextricably involved in another. So restriction is sometimes freedom. Less is sometimes more and so forth. And Alan Watts uh, said the very things that we believe to exist are always what he called on-offs. Ons alone and offs alone do not exist. Every yes brings its hidden no. Uh, so we should problematize all our orthodoxies on that basis. We're only saying no at the outset so as to say yes to something later. Um, and so uh, here we have this image of asymmetry and the structure of the brain, as I say, is one of asymmetry, but of mutual inhibition. The upper parts of the cortex inhibit the lower parts. The frontal cortex's main job is to inhibit the posterior cortex. The frontal cortex on which, you know, the intelligence of humans and primates depends because they have such expanded frontal cortex. What does the frontal cortex do? Mainly it says no. And by saying no, it stops things that otherwise would happen happening and something much greater comes in its place. It stops that immediate reaction from being too close to life. It allows you to see, stand back and see the broader picture and inhibit your immediate reaction. So a finely modulated response depends on no as well as yes. Um, uh, and uh, Heraclitus said in one of his uh, somewhat uh, obscure sayings, um, they do not understand, by which he broadly meant everybody but Heraclitus, um, he was a bit like that. Um, they do not understand, he says, how a thing agrees at variance with itself. It is a harmonia like that of the bow or the lyre. The word harmonia is obviously the origin of the word harmony, but it means uh, as applied to a bow or a lyre. You see, you might think those strings achieve everything by being taught 
by being pulled in two opposite directions. You get the musical note or you get the capacity to fire the arrow. So you might think, logically speaking, well, what's the point in exerting effort in two opposite directions? Why not just cancel it and stop exerting effort at all? But the trouble then is the string goes slack and it has no capacity at all to create anything. So the creation comes out of that duality. Uh, I'm afraid I wasn't able to show you that, but of course here is the most famous duality of all the Taijitu, or the yin-yang symbol as it's often known. What I like about it is there's a bit of yang in the yin and a bit of yin in the yang, and they, between them they make a perfect circle. Uh, it, people often say, oh, well, that's fine, that's a sort of oriental idea, but how does that fit with Western thinking? Well, first of all, it might not, and we could still learn from it. But anyway, uh, the symbol does exist in, in the West. This is a Saxon plate from the uh, first century, and this is from a Roman shield of the third century. Um, and it's there, actually, in this image of uh, the hands that I showed you. Uh, the same sort of shape that you see there is what you see there. And actually, it's also in the brain, because if you outline <laughs> what I showed you before, turning it on its side, you also see this tendency of the brain itself to image that uh, yin-yang symbol. So, as Hegel said at the beginning of his logic, and by the way, Note that, this is at the beginning of his logic. Thesis, the absolute is pure being. Antithesis, the absolute is nothing. Synthesis, the absolute is becoming. Thank you very much.